0: Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is January 12th. It's Friday. I had a busy day. I'm kind of tired, but there's a few things I just felt were necessary to talk about, so we'll do it. It is the end of the week. I've been working a lot, skiing a lot, podcasting a lot, running a lot, just staying very busy, and I I think tonight is a couch night. I think I might finally watch... Either the new Harry Potter movies that I never saw, which I heard are kind of eh, or I might watch the final um, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny or whatever. So we shall see. But that's kind of what I'm thinking tonight is just to unwind once I'm done with this. So I want to mainly talk about the U.S. and the United Kingdom doing strikes on the Houthi rebels and what that means for a larger conflict. It's kind of looking like we're in a period of maritime madness, maritime mayhem. And I, I, I will basically argue that Iran's policy of propping up all these proxies is starting to backfire. And ironically, Iran thought it would make their message spread and make them safer back home. But instead, it looks like the Houthis could actually drag Iran into this if they're not careful. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the GOP primary. Iowa is obviously coming up this coming week. And what I want to talk about is Chris Christie. So he dropped out, right? And there's a hilarious clip going around. I think it was the New York Times was talking with him, and they, or, or basically the New York Times is the one that released it, but basically Chris Christie is caught on a hot mic before he goes out in front of the crowd to announce he's dropping out. And he bashes all the other candidates and says, Nikki Haley doesn't have a chance, and says Ron DeSantis called him and is petrified about what's next. And I just want to play it because I think it's just kind of funny. I don't know. It, this is definitely this is definitely Schadenfreude at the nth degree right now. But whatever. Yeah, that's what you get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, she spent sixty eight million so far, just on TV. Spent sixty eight million so far. Fifty nine million by DeSantis, and we spent twelve. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment? You know, and she's going to get smoked, and you and I both know it. She's not up to this. Yeah. He's still 20 points behind Trump in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And he's gonna—he's still going to carry Iowa, right? Yes. Oh, he's... I, t- you know, I talked to... DeSantis called me. He was petrified that he's I would... He's probably getting out after Iowa. Well, now, DeSantis has already come out and said he doesn't know what he's talking about, blah, blah, blah. To me, I don't really care about DeSantis in this, or Christy bringing up DeSantis, whatever. DeSantis... Part of me thinks DeSantis kind of hopes he doesn't do well in Iowa so he can just drop out and save face. But I also wonder if Nikki Haley's thinking that because I truly think she wants to be VP. It's a mess, but I think Chris Christie's absolutely correct. I watched that whole entire Wednesday debate because apparently I just hate myself. No, I do it for you guys, of course. I watch it so you don't have to. But anyways, watching that, I just went, neither one of these people can do it. They just don't... there's, There's an it... And they just don't have it. And anyways, I uh, I am interested, though, with Christie's point where he talks about how much she has spent on TV ads. And it's a valid point because I want to know this late in the game why there were all these donors going from DeSantis to her. Like, the writing is on the wall. Like, everyone's talking about how, oh, she might do really well in New Hampshire. She could even win New Hampshire. It's like Trump is still up in New Hampshire. And until I actually see the polls or or sorry the the results of the New Hampshire primary I I won't believe it till I see it because also it's just New Hampshire she she might do well in New Hampshire but I don't see her even winning her home state of South Carolina so it's interesting all the money that she's spent I guess you could argue that Chris Christie's danced around 3% and he spent less, but at least he's been loud and people are talking about him and he's told the truth. So in a sense, maybe maybe he has gained the most from this because Ron DeSantis definitely has lost the most in my opinion. And I guess the one thing I am kind of conflicted on though is if this is good because I, I don't like Nikki Haley, but obviously I would rather her than Trump, though I don't like either one. And I don't know if a hot mic of him saying she has no chance is really great because... He was kinda I think a lot of people were hoping he would drop out, endorse her, and his supporters would go towards her. Well, I don't know if that's as much gonna be the case now because his supporters really like him and if he's saying she has no chance, I don't know, guys. So I, I just love this because look, Chris Christie's not a perfect guy. He's even talked about his transformation from, you know, being one of the first mainstream Republicans to green light Trump in twenty fifteen to now where he's at. So not always been a fan of Chris Christie, but he's doing the right thing now. And I actually think he's doing it for genuine reasons. So hopefully he doesn't go away. I hope he keeps still saying a lot of crazy shit about Trump and pissing off Trump. And yeah, it, it's just fun to see all this happening. And anyways, I'm bad. Sorry, guys. I didn't mention that Trump actually did a town hall on Fox News with Martha McAllen and Brett Bayer. And again, I mean, Trump was entertaining, funny. And the interesting thing is, is that I've noticed lately that Trump you know, will be at these rallies and just say crazy shit and not even mention maybe calming down violence. And he seems like an autocrat. And then he'll do these town halls and be very kind of respectful and calm and actually answer questions from the audience. And it kind of troubles me because it shows that this guy can go back and forth. He can just turn on and off these dangerous tendencies. Like in this town hall, and I'm not going to play any clips of it, but... In this town hall, he kind of comes off as charming, and the fact that he can be charming at one moment and then just a complete nutbag authoritarian wannabe the next moment kind of troubles me. That's Those are tendencies I don't like in people. I, I don't like those in my friends, let alone the guy who is going to be the most powerful person in the world if he's reelected, so very troubling. The one thing I will mention, I didn't actually watch the whole thing, but I, I just watched some highlights and analysis of it, and it was interesting. He was asked about the vice president. And he actually mentioned that he's already made his decision. And then they asked him, what about the other candidates that are running against you in this primary? Would any of them be on it? Would you be willing to make amends with any of them? And he said yes. So I am really starting to wonder if the whole Nikki Haley theory is true. I'm genuinely wondering if she might be on his list. Now, I don't know if he's asked her. I don't know if she would do it. It seems like she would do it just based on her actions and how she's running her campaign at this point. But it is interesting to me that he said he's already picked someone. <sighs> we're, we're getting close. And also, also the thing he's been lying about a lot lately is he keeps saying that all the violence has happened under Biden and under him everything was peaceful. 2020, to me, was not particularly a peaceful year. You had the George Floyd murder, which led to riots, and then he wanted to use the Insurrection Act and bring in the National Guard and beat up protesters. There were the reports of unmarked vans taking protesters out of places like Portland. He wanted to use the—he wanted to basically extend the state to basically come down with an iron fist. And then, obviously, we have January 6th. And then you had Charlottesville in, what, 2017, where there were good people on both sides, race riots. I mean— when I think of the Trump era, I don't really think of peace, but he sure he sure talks about how peaceful the United States was and how stable everything was. But again, this is coming from the stable genius, the perfect guy who makes perfect phone calls. So yeah, there's just, I'm going to move on. Let's talk about the Houthis. So for about the last month or so, I've been talking about Bab al-Mandab, which is a narrow strait between Africa and the, uh, and the Arabian Peninsula. This is where the Red Sea is, and according to this, all the numbers I've seen, they estimate about 12% of global trade by volume goes through it, and they also say 30% of global container traffic goes through it, and over the last month, it's become that no-go zone as the Houthis have been relentlessly attacking ships. This is because they're saying they want to stop goods from going to Israel, which is just not true. Like Israel doesn't get its goods from this, but anyways... And the strikes have been escalating, and there's been ballistic missile attacks, drone attacks. Ships are now going around um, to the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. And things have just gotten worse and worse and worse since I first did a podcast episode on this about a month ago. And this is one of those things where this is not about Israel or Palestine or Ukraine or Russia This is about the global economy, and people are taking this pretty seriously and for good reasons. The last thing we need is a supply chain bottleneck issue right now, and that's exactly what this would cause. So anyways, I'm not going to rehash that because I've obviously done a podcast about that. Um, But anyways, yesterday – no, no, today. I guess early today, that's right, yeah. Early today because they're way ahead of us time zone-wise. Today, the United States and the United Kingdom – have basically responded to all this chaos by finally attacking Houthi targets in Yemen. They did more than 60 sea and air attacks on the Houthi targets, basically trying to threaten them into stopping their attacks on the Red Sea to restore open passage. And the problem is now people are worried this is going to expand the Middle East conflict that we're seeing. And I would think, yes, it probably will expand it in some realm. I don't know if it's going to expand it into some global conflict or a conflict of the globe, but it, it probably will in the initial era start something new. Anyways, I want to read the Economist passage here because I think it's a really good setup for what I want to talk about. It writes here in quotes, mass demonstrations took place in Sana'a, which is by the way is Yemen's capital, after America and Britain launched strikes against the Houthis. An Iranian-backed Yemeni militant group." which has been attacking cargo ships in the Red Sea. The Houthis promised to re- to retaliate, saying there would be a heavy price for the strikes. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's president, accused America and Britain for intending to turn the Red Sea into a sea of blood. The article continues, oil prices spiked by 4.3% in trading this morning, rising above $80 per barrel. Lovely, guys. Lovely. They'll have a new thing to blame Biden for oil prices on. <laughs> now... Erdogan's comments Turkey's president, I think, are despicable. He's accusing the United States and the United Kingdom of turning the Red Sea into a sea of blood. I call bullshit. Bullshit on that. Because who started this in the Red Sea? It's the Yemeni rebels. They're the ones firing on ships that are just trying to, you know, keep global trade going. And they were also... Basically what I would say is this is similar to the whole Somali pirates thing. Remember that movie Captain Phillips that that was all about? Except this is happening in a place that we care about. No one really talked as much about the Somali pirates because, well, I hate to say it, but global trade wasn't just flowing through it like this. And so it's not the United States turning it into a sea of blood. It's the Houthis trying to obstruct global trade, and so everyone's pissed off. Even, I mean, I was going to talk about this later, but I'll just mention it now. Basically, even Russia and China are worried about the e- economic ramifications of this. Because, like I said, this is not just going to hurt the West. It's going to hurt everyone. And basically, <laughs> on, on on Wednesday, Russia and China actually refused to veto the Security Council resolution that was kind of the the paving ideas for these attacks on Yemen. And basically... Iran's top diplomat is pissed off at Russians foreign, or yeah, the Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov, and what happened was the U.S. and Japan had jointly submitted this discussion of responding to the Yemen, to the Houthis in Yemen, and Moscow nor Beijing actually came to the rescue of Iran about this, and instead they just abstained, and I think it's because they don't want to be dragged into this either. I mean, no one really wants these economic repercussions. So it's getting interesting now. And you're seeing, I mean, you're seeing like Ro Khanna and then like like, like you're seeing the, the, the progressive left, the squad type of left, and then like the far right condemn this. But it's actually kind of good news because most of the Republicans and most of the Democrats agreed on this. And I agree with it. I, I think the Houthis had this coming, and we we need to respond to this because this is not just about... You can disagree with what Israel's doing, which I do, but you also can say, like, the Houthis should not be doing this because this is going to make a lot of issues worse around the world. Anyways, Tom Nichols has a good piece in The Atlantic, and he talks about how he thinks the operation was quite legal. A lot of people are saying Biden doesn't have the ability to do this. They're getting back into that argument... Ro Khanna and Congresswoman Jayapal both pushed this argument forward that Congress has to declare war. The president doesn't have the executive power to do this. We can debate that. I, I, I think there's arguments in both ways, but Tom Nichols talks about how, look, you guys can use that argument for this, but we haven't declared war since, I, I believe it was 1942, when FDR declared war on Hungary, Bulgaria, and Romania They were allied with the Axis because he personally thought it was not right to engage in war without a formal declaration of it. But since then, we haven't declared war. So, look, it's just not a really, really, really great argument. And anyways, uh, Tom Nichols writes, I, I really like this passage here. He says, in quotes, The operation short and limited to military targets and in a nation that cannot control the acts of an unwelcome group, falls well within the legal as well as the traditional requirements for the use of force by members of the international community. So far, both American political parties, even with a bit of GOP grumbling, have made the right call to support action against the Houthis. I agree. And this is not declaring war. It's a military action. It's a global response. Japan and the United States were talking about this, filing resolutions to do this. Britain was involved. I think this is fine. And basically... I think this is really bad for Iran. The reason I say that is because this is probably the biggest skirmish that has now heightened that same fear of can this war spread and could the war spread to Hamas's main backer which is Iran and Iran has been really dancing a very tight rope here. On one hand it is fully in support of Hamas and wants Israel destroyed. Its rhetoric has been fiery for quite some time now. We all know where Iran, at least rhetorically, stands on this, right? But then on the other hand, it's avoided any direct confrontations with the United States or Israel, right? It probably knows it wouldn't go well. Like, let's be honest. And also the Ayatollah Khamenei has kind of had this strategy I was reading about called strategic patience. And This is basically propping up and improving the capabilities of proxies in Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, and Yemen. But this is doing so while also avoiding any direct contact with the United States, our allies, Israel. And Iran has created this axis of outcasts or axis of resistance, as the Atlantic article calls it, whatever you want to call it, Iran has been propping up these proxies talking a loud game, but then really avoiding an actual conflict because it it wouldn't do well. And so now, though, there's a lot of criticism towards Iran and Khamenei himself because they think that maybe this is backfiring. Because what we're seeing now is all these groups that have been propped up by Iran, now they all want to go fight for Hamas to destroy Israel And Iran's like, yo, 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 like, we don't want a global war here because we're going to lose it. But Iran has propped up all these groups for so long that now that there's an actual fight going on, they want to be there and they want to escalate it. And I think the Houthis are a perfect example of that exact dynamic. And Hezbollah is a little bit different because obviously Hezbollah, I think, is the most powerful of the Iranian axis or whatever you want to call it. And I think Iran behind the scenes has really convinced Hezbollah to not respond with a lot of force so far. But the Houthis have always, from my understanding, been kind of known as the radicals, the ones who don't listen to authority as much, the ones that are willing to go far. And that's what they're doing. And I think Iran should have saw this coming. I mean, it's already breaking down. I mean, after the Trump administration killed Qassem Soleimani, for example, in 2020, or was that late 2019? No, I think it was 2020. His Iranian Revolutionary Guard had expanded into helping these groups in places like Iraq. We took him out. And, yeah, I mean, it's just backfiring, though. Like, you you should have expected this to happen when you literally have fighters that are brought up in kind of Iran's unique version of Shia Islamis- Islamism. Sorry, And basically, this is a multinational army at this point. Proxies, obviously, they're not all fighting for Iran directly. But they do agree with the Iranian message, and Hamas is also part of that. And so they also all want the downfall of Israel. And I think we are now at a moment where Iran's kind of cold war with Israel and the United States, it could turn into a real thing. I'm still hesitant that it will. I honestly think Iran is more likely to turn on the Houthis and either force them to stop doing this or completely just you know, um, cut ties with them before they would fight the United States and Israel. I genuinely believe that. Because this would be just really bad for Iran Iran if things get much worse. And as I said, the Houthis have a tradition since they took Sana'a in 2014 of just having fierce independence. And this is a very radical group, I think, compared to some of the other ones. I mean, they're all radicals, don't get me wrong. There's not a lot of great, perfect groups in this. <laughs> but I, I think I think the Houthis are significantly more radical. And I think Iran at the end of the day, as the Atlantic writes, Tehran must be faced with a tough question. How much pressure is it willing to put on the Houthis? Right? So, and there's something else actually going on here too. I think we're seeing kind of a growth in just maritime madness and mayhem. What I mean is that obviously we have this escalation in the Red Sea. But we have to also remember that the Black Sea, quite a ways north, it's a shit show. Mines are getting I mean it's filling up with mines. And you have crippled warships. The Russian navy is in Crimea. Then you also have pipeline attacks and cable sabotage in the Baltics and the North Sea. Also we're seeing China Uh, And what we're seeing, Asia in general, seeing the largest buildup of naval power in quite some time. uh, Taiwan's elections, which I'm actually going to probably talk about either tomorrow or Monday, Taiwan's elections are happening. China is trying to coerce Taiwan into basically unifying. And they want to scare the United States away. We actually have Taiwan's election happening tomorrow. And so that's going to be interesting to see. But basically, some people say maritime warfare not quite as bad as ground warfare. But also, to me, this shows just kind of a changing dynamic. And to me, when I think of maritime war, it's about intimidation, especially economic intimidation, and it's very symbolic. And it worries me about what the next couple decades are going to bring. I genuinely, genuinely believe that. So anyways, I can't speak. It's been a freaking long week. So I'm going to get out of here, but I just wanted to cover this for a little bit. So have a great rest of your night, and I'll be back. As always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios.